Okay, but wait, did that make sense? Yeah, man. No. Magical sawdust muffin fairies. I was with it. K-Ball, you're saying no, you're against. Did it or no? So your muffin is your function or variable? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And you want to use it, but you're up at the top. Mm-hmm. And it was down there in the sawdust. Your muffin started down in the sawdust because it, you defined it later? Yeah, you defined it down there, but actually it got hoisted up. Sure. Okay. I did my best. <laughs> He's like, come on, man. I don't have anything better. And, and I love the muffin fairy. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Lino. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at lino.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, party people? Are you ready for Core Web Vitals? Well, our friends at Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website. That's exactly why Raygun has made them into their real-time user monitoring tools. Now you can see how your Core Web Vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters most to you and your team. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action quickly, identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance level, diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Learn more at raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start at eight bucks a month. Again, raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Did you know we have a website? JSParty.fm is where you'll find our favorite episodes, the most popular ones, and a request form so your favorite guest or topic can get featured as well. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at JSPartyFM. All right, let's do this. It's party time, y'all. It's your internet friend, Jared Santo, and I am excited for JS Party today. I have three of our regular panelists here with me. Amelia, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. You're welcome. Thanks for being good. If you would have said I'm bad, then I would have felt awkward. <laughs> you're welcome. So I'm glad you're good or I'm at least willing to lie about it. <laughs> K-Ball, what's up, man? I'm bad. Bad to the bone. <laughs> you just set me up for that. No, I'm, I'm happy to be back on. <laughs> excited to be here. Well, that's how it works around here. I set them up and you knock them down, K-Ball. We also have Bone Skull, who is a fan of knocking things down. What's up, Chris? What's up? I'm here I am. <laughs> See? <laughs> He's already knocking things down and we're just getting started. So we have a couple of awesome recurring segments for everyone today. And we're going to start off with Story of the Week. It's time to take a peek. It's time for story of the week. So story of the week is one of our recurring segments where we just take turns sharing what we believe is the most important or the biggest story of the week 
or recently, or maybe just the one that we found before the show started. So take it for what you will. Some of these are newsy. Some of these are just cool things that we think are interesting. Here we go. So let's start off with K-Ball. What's your story of the week? Yeah, so the story I picked out is not JavaScript specific, but it was a study that came out recently looking at the impact of the dramatic shift to remote work, looking at like a whole bunch of Microsoft employees that apparently gave access to like all sorts of tracking info about how they work and who they meet with and all these other things. And so these researchers dug into it and found a couple interesting things about the impact. And how generalizable this is to remote work globally is an interesting question, right? Because we all have seen like working in a pandemic is not the same as just working remotely. But one of the things that stood out to me is how communication across different parts of the company changed. And what they said is they found that the networks kind of ossified and shrunk. So people communicated as much or more with the people they were really, really close to. But those kind of weak connections across different parts of the organization went away. And there was a lot less communication across kind of outside of your immediate team or beyond that, your department. And it got me thinking a lot about remote work practices. I'm somebody who worked remotely long before the pandemic. I spend a ridiculous amount of time just scheduling random meetings with people. Having seen this, I'm like, oh, that's why. Because when you're remote, you don't get those casual connections. You have to be extremely deliberate about it. Right. But I thought it was interesting. I thought it was worth considering for both as individuals, like how do we make sure that if we're still working remotely, you know, we're maintaining those connections, but then also for folks who are running teams to say, okay, you know, check in with your team. Are they still connecting to people outside their team? Like, how do we make sure that we maintain those diverse connections? Because that's where, I mean, for me, that's where the fun stuff is, right? Like, I know what my team's working on. It's neat to learn about what other teams are working on. And often those conversations generate new ideas and breakthroughs. Yeah, absolutely. Amelia, you've joined GitHub and you probably have never been, have you, did you go to the HQ? I'm guessing you've been remote only since you joined. I actually had a full job during the pandemic before GitHub where I met one of my coworkers really briefly, but I basically still haven't met any of them. And it's strange. And I, I definitely get the like, my team's really small. We're four people and we hang out with each other a lot and we hang out with other people very much not a lot. So it's also interesting, like in a physical office, there's proximity between teams. Like there's like other teams who you sit near. So I wonder what the remote proximity is like. Is there anyone who's closer than anyone else like digitally? <laughs> Probably not. You need a study. You need to perform a study to find the answers to these things. It's too much work. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to study. We're right up. <laughs> Chris, what about you? You also, were you remote the entire time or you went remote? I can't recall. No, I've been remote for like a decade now. I don't, I don't really remember what it's like to work in an office. Yeah, same. So one thing I read, which ties into what you found, K-Ball, is interesting about the culture changes in and around Apple because of their adoption of Slack, company-wide Slack. I think there's a Verge article, which maybe I can find and link up. And I'm not sure if the move to Slack coincided with the remote or came before that. Whatever it is, still you're using mostly these chat and digital tools to communicate company-wide and how that changed dramatically. I think the relationships cross-functionally or even like vertically inside the company because now you have direct access to folks that you otherwise would have had to like 
go upstairs and talk to if you're at HQ. There's lots of things that change and change quite dramatically because so many people went remote in dramatic fashion, thinking it was temporary and now kind of having pushback by employees saying, no, 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 this, this is better. So we can find that one as well. But I think things are changing inside organizations due to this. Some for the better and some for the worst. Apple's a really interesting example, too, because they are historically so incredibly private and siloed. Yeah, not so much anymore. In fact, I just saw today that Tim Cook made some sort of statement that people who leak are not Apple people. And that information came from a leak out of Apple. (laughs) (laughs) It was a private thing that leaked. So... The irony there is quite thick. Well, let's get to some other stories. Definitely the remote work thing is an ongoing and very important story and aspect of our lives. Amelia, yours are a little bit more technical and nitty gritty. You want to share your story of the week? Yeah, I couldn't think of anything that happened recently. (laughs) So I just picked two things. The first one is a little bit newsy, but it's uh, CSS container query units are in Chrome Canary. Super exciting. Uh, This is like, so you know how you can have viewport units like viewport width, viewport height in CSS. You can say something's 10% of the width. Well, now in only Chrome Canary, (laughs) you can base it on its container. So you can say, you know, I want this image to be 10% of the width, but you can also do more complicated things like stack things differently. I haven't totally read into it yet, but it's very exciting. I'm excited to read about it. I'm excited to use it sometime in the future. The other thing that's not newsy that I think is really cool is Harry Roberts. He did some talk that you can't listen to, but you can see the slides. And he released this CSS snippet where it basically turns all of the links and scripts and things in your the head of your document into um, like visible things. Like basically they exist. They're just like... Uh, not visible. So there's with a little bit of CSS, you can make these things visible. And if you use it on any of any web page, you can see like things that are maybe not as performant as you want them to be. Like it'll highlight if your title is blocked by some blocking JavaScript mm. that has to execute before, you know, like crawlers might get the title and um, like there's green, orange and red blocks and I don't know. I think it's super cool that you can just use a little bit of CSS and get this kind of performance report. That is cool. So he provides a bookmarklet, drag and drop the following link in your bookmark bar. And so you can do that on any website, right? You just click that and it's going to do it. It's going to show you that. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's spectacular. This is very cool. And he gets an award for the pun of the day because it's called Check Your Head. Get it? Check Your Head. Yeah, he's got a ton of puns in his slides. If you like puns, you should go through the slides. I don't remember them, though. I like the Beastie Boys. <laughs> there you go. If you like puns or if you like the Beastie Boys, this is an article for you. <laughs> well, since yours aren't exactly news, I, I think it's fit to share mine because mine's not newsy at all. In fact, mine is a, an article that wasn't even posted recently. It was posted in July. Hey, that's recent, isn't it? Actually, that's going to be a part of this conversation. So very poetically so. Months later, I'm reading this, and it's by Rach Smith, and her article says, I completely ignored the front-end development scene for six months. It was fine. And it's not the it was fine with the, the dog and the fire who's saying it's, everything's fine. This is like actually okay. <laughs> so if you don't know who Rach Smith is, 
She is a longtime developer. She works at CodePen and has been publishing on the web for many years. So I've read her stuff over the years. In fact, she says in this post, she first started coding professionally. It was with Adobe Flash. Then Steve Jobs decided to kill Flash and it forced her to learn how to animate things with JavaScript, CSS3, and HTML Canvas. She goes on to talk about a long progression in her career in which things moved fast and she was always trying to keep up. And then nine years passed, she took six months off. And as many of us do, we think if we're taking six months off from the front end scene or from heck from the web scene in general, that you're going to be light years behind when you come back. But she found that not to be the case. And so she says what she learned through this experience is that the number of languages she's learned or the specific framework she's gained experience with matters very little. What actually matters is her ability to upskill quickly and effectively. And so I'm, I appreciate Rach for sharing this because it's something that I think is a nice reminder that, you know, things do move fast and the list of technologies on any given job post are changing all the time. And many times they'll want you to have 10 years experience and a thing that's been out for eight years or such monstrosities as that. But our fear of missing out, our fear of falling behind isn't not real, but isn't always well-placed. The technologies change and shift, but the foundations, the fundamentals, and the skills that you're building transcend those technologies. So you're going to be just fine. You're going to be okay. And I thought that was a good story for this week, even though it was a story for a week in July. What do you think, K-Ball? I spent, what, two and a half, three years publishing a weekly front-end development newsletter. And I stopped doing that a few months ago. And one, I want to say that I'm so much happier not keeping up on what's happening every week. (laughs) It's so stressful to feel like there's this constant churn and you've got to constantly keep up and do this and do that. So I'm personally happier not trying to keep up with everything all the time. I like to catch up every now and then, but if something's big, it'll get to me eventually. I don't have to keep pulling. But the other thing that I learned from doing that is even though there's this sense of constant churn and I could find tons of articles every week and all the time like the amount of new actually new content is pretty low a lot of times they'd be linking something like oh this is another take on that thing yeah that's pretty well done maybe this one will work for you but after doing that for three years of like okay i'm just seeing all the the content that's coming through in this space like actual legitimate new interesting changes they're not as frequent as they feel like it's just we've got this like industry of churn and this feeling of I got to keep publishing and I got to keep reading and I got to keep doing all these things to keep up. And at the core, it's like, no, there's change, but it's built on the same fundamentals. Where do you think this sort of fear comes from? I see a lot of junior developers lamenting on Twitter that it's hard to keep up or they're on Reddit and they're complaining about it. And So, I mean, is it just you want to keep up to maximize your career potential or is it something else? Like, what is the root of that fear not keeping up with JavaScript? Yeah, I think it's fear of irrelevancy. I used to say that tongue in cheek that my greatest virtue as a software developer is fear of irrelevancy because that means I'm always abreast of what's new and shaken. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek because it's true but it's overstated. And as a person who has been in the news 
for many years. I mean, I, I'm always logging with changelog news, what's fresh and new and open source. It's kind of like what we do at changelog. So I see a, a lot of things come and go. And I will say that in the last, let's just call it 10 years, the pace of releases and the announcements and the blog posts have multiplied exponentially at the merger of, let's just say, capitalism and open source. Like when everybody jumped on open source as a way of getting ahead for whatever your goals are, way more things came out. And so, I mean, I remember when Rails took over back in 04, it was like the big announcement of the year. I mean, there's other projects, but it wasn't like now where there'll be five, six, seven, like credibly awesome new things that actually launch on a weekly basis that you're like, this is a whole world that is really interesting and is powerful and it's legit. And there it is. And you see that across your feed. So I think social media to a certain degree drives that the FOMO, the, the feeling that other people are shipping things and you aren't. And then other people that you respect are also liking those things that are being shipped. And maybe you should jump on that ship. I don't know. There's a lot of just hype and it's gotten louder and louder and louder. And so disconnecting is kind of a, a nice way to, to appease those fears. But that's what I'm seeing. Amelia, what do you think about why people have this fear of not catching the next wave or whatever it is? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm talking through this. I don't actually believe this. But I think there's a, a lot of ground to cover. Like more and more things are um, possible on the web. And there's more and more types of applications and, you know, corporate websites and marketing websites, and they have to do all these things. Like you can't just publish a website that doesn't have any CSS on it, even though that's a perfectly functional website. So I wonder if joining the industry, there's just so much to learn and people don't specialize at all, right? Like when you're just learning, you're not like, oh, I'm going to be a developer for marketing websites. You're like, I have to learn everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it takes you know, years, five years to get your feet down and actually figure out like, oh, okay, like I don't need to know everything. I can only pay attention to things in my own niche and figuring out where your niche is. And so like, I think really experienced developers probably have all gone through a period where they're really stressed out and then have hopefully found some sanity and uh, found their own niche where they can pay attention to and not to other things. And I wonder if that's just learning what's important and we don't have any tracks but hopefully in the future we'll have you know i want to be this kind of developer but i don't know maybe not i also wonder how much of this is that like getting your first job in tech is hard yeah getting your second your third your fourth not so hard right like once you're kind of in and you have a little bit more of a track record it becomes a lot easier to find those jobs. And some of that is problems in our hiring practices and the fact that companies don't do good, like don't want to hire entry-level folks because they've got to invest in them. And some of it is we've got a glut of folks coming in from boot camps. And so there's mm -hmm. just a way larger number of entry-level, but getting that first job is hard. And so people are kind of looking at these job reckless and they're like, oh, this one wants these five things. Well, maybe if I learn those things, I'll have an opportunity there. And oh, this one over here, this wants these other five things. And they're trying to like bridge across all the different things so they can apply to all the different jobs to get their first job because it's hard mm -hmm. and they're getting a lot of rejections along the way. And I mean, this is 
pure speculation because it's been a, a long time since I was in that boat. I won't date myself on that, but I have this feeling like the way that we hire junior folks is contributing to the FOMO. Those of us who are more senior or who are helping make hiring decisions or things like that, like there are things that we can do that would reduce some of that FOMO. I think so. I think focusing in on individual technologies is one of the things. I was just also, I guess, thinking about the fact that this blog post comes from a very experienced developer. And so it's kind of a mature thought. And why is that? And I think it's because when you just get started, maybe you only know one thing, right? Like if you just like, I learned React, sort of, and I can do stuff with it. Something else coming replacing React is like existential at that point, right? I mean, maybe that's where it comes from. I mean, if all I knew was Ruby on Rails and all of a sudden Django was all anybody was hiring for, I need to learn something else or get a different career. And so I think maybe over time, as you realize, you can kind of collect to yourselves these different technologies. But as I said earlier, and as Rach says in that post, the underlying foundational understanding of software is what really transcends and matters then you can kind of chill out and relax. But when you don't know any better, you don't know any better. And when the jobs are so focused on these hiring practices that target these specific things, then something replacing that is legitimately scary with regards to career, at least. Lots of thoughts there. A couple of good things coming out in the, the chat. One thing that Matt said, which I thought was good, is it's a good idea to wait to see what sticks, too. So the other thing you see over time is how many things come and go. And jumping onto something too early that's going to fail is end up end up being a waste of time as well. So, yeah, not following so closely, or at least not investing too much in brand new things, and waiting to see how it shakes out before you decide. Yeah, that's something worth investing my time in. Yeah, it's like these job postings. They'll list all these technologies, like you know React or AWS, whatever they want you to do, and then you get to the interview. And the interviews like whiteboard questions. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Right. And so maybe you weren't really prepared for it. Maybe you're not good at that stuff. It's like, okay, I went out and I learned React so I could get jobs like this, but now I can't get jobs like this because I got to go back and do leak code. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's busted. It's busted. Well, let's turn briefly to something that is still kind of busted, but gets better every single time a new release comes out. Chris, you want to talk about iOS 15, right? Well, yeah. So I've been heads down on a thing that I've been working on um, for the past couple of weeks. And I saw there was some sort of announcement about iOS 15, but I'm completely ignorant and I have no idea what's in it. And I have no idea what that means, especially for the mobile web and, and Safari on iOS. Can anybody help me? Please. Well, I heard that it does some bizarre design change to where the address bar is, like moves it to the bottom instead of the top, which yes, is just like messing with my brain here. Yes. So I actually like it on the bottom. So I did not run the betas, but I know there was a lot of discussion around the betas because it moved a lot throughout. There's a very dramatic redesign, which has been changed throughout the betas and finally settled. It still is at the bottom. You can put it back at the top. This is the tab, the address bar and the tabs. So the nice thing about it on the bottom is that it's easy to get with your thumb and just a swipe and stuff. So there are some virtues to having it there. There are other aspects of the browser, which the UI also has thrown people for a loop. But in terms of 
web development, I guess, I'm not sure how relevant that topic is for us web devs. I think in web developer world, the main thing is, that, you know, it's still one rendering engine to rule them all. And Apple has not released their grip on WebKit only based browsers in iOS 15. Like that would be an amazing, I think, change and boon for web developers is to allow the Chromes and the Firefoxes and the Edges and the mobile brave browsers to bring their own rendering engine. That didn't change. In fact, JS Party panelist Feroz has taken to Twitter and started posting these very interesting and fun browser ban tweets with some memes he's created to get to try to convince Apple to release their grip on the browsers inside of iOS. But that has not changed. That would be huge. There are a few things that are new. I think the biggest one is probably the web extensions. So Apple brought web extensions to Safari and Mac OS last year, and now they're bringing it to iOS so people can write extensions for Safari with web technologies, and they will run inside of Safari to do various things. That's pretty cool. So you can run any sort of extension on mobile Safari? Yes, you can run extensions on mobile Safari. Like uBlock Origin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that was already available. Like Content blockers were already approved wow. prior to this. But this opens it up even more so. One example of that that I've been running is Apollo, which is a popular Reddit app, which is better than Reddit's Reddit app, has built in an extension. So now that inside of Safari, if you click a Reddit link, you can set it up to automatically open an Apollo versus going to Safari's mobile view that wants to launch the Reddit app. If you don't use the Reddit app, it won't blah, blah, blah. So that's like just one example. Uh, another one that's cool is there's a Mac OS extension called Apple Keyword Search or Safari Keyword Search, which allows you to like sh throw in shortcuts into the search bar and like automatically search Amazon, automatically search IMDb, whatever you can imagine. And that was only on Mac OS Safari for a while. And now since iOS 15, you can now get that on mobile Safari, which is great because on mobile, you're already trying to type less letters to get to searches. So that's extending the built-in search inside the address bar in mobile Safari. So those are a few examples of what people are doing with them. I want to go back to that address bar move again. So do you know, do they expose that via a media query or something? Because I know a lot of folks will write like mobile web apps and they'll try to do the the style of like the bottom nav bar that mirrors like the iOS thing or things like that. And I feel like that gets kind of weird if you've shifted around where the address bar and things are. So is that exposed to developers to be able to tell? That I don't know, but I feel like those UIs fell by the wayside when Apple kind of did their big redesign back in like iOS 5 or something. Like I, I haven't seen those like tabbed browse. Like that was like a thing that people did with mobile jQuery or jQuery mobile, but I'm not sure people are really doing like lower tabbed base navigation in their web apps like they used to, unless they're maybe a little bit older. But I don't know if you can actually detect it or not. To me, I just think it's the the viewport starts above wherever that is. And that's just kind of how it works. Maybe you can. There's also some other small improvements, uh, you know, things that were in beta, like web features. But apparently the link that I put into our show notes is dead now. So I can't click on it and read those. So let's forget about it. I'll put that in the show notes. If you are interested in certain small things like new CSS features, new JavaScript features, can read through those. And we'll be right back with Explain It Like I'm Five. 
This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, including us. Sentry also recently shipped a new SDK for Next.js applications. Check the show notes for links to more details. Best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG. Here and it is time for Explain It Like I'm Five. Can you explain it like I'm five? K Ball, what you got? Virtual Dom. That sounds complex. Can you explain it like I'm five? So, this is something that I think was initially made famous by React and has been adopted by many, but not all advanced JavaScript frameworks. And To explain it like I'm explaining to a five-year-old, I'm going to go into the physical world. So imagine that you have a room with furniture in it, like a bunch of couches and tables and chairs, and you want to move it around, right? And you, you want to reorganize things. Now, one way you could approach this is you could say, okay, to do this in order. So I'm going to move that chair over across the room. And in order to do that, actually, I need to move this couch out of the way, and then I'm going to move the chair, and then I'll put the couch back where it started kind of moving things around. And then you say, okay, now that chair is where I want it to be. Let me move something else. Let me say, okay, this table, I want to move this table. So let me pick that table up, move it. Oh, where I want it to go has something else in it. I got to push that out of the way. And now I'll put the table there. And okay, now I'm going to do it. And so you're doing these changes one by one. And they're fairly expensive. Like you got to move a bunch of stuff around to move things. Like that is changing things in the DOM right? Mm -hmm. I have a web page. I'm moving stuff around. Anytime I touch something in the DOM itself, it's pretty expensive. It's you know, it takes a bunch of time. Maybe I got to move other things around, reflow the browser, all that sort of thing. Now, in my physical world, I could do this faster by saying, okay, let me first actually make a little model of my room. I'm going to have a, a toy version of the room, or I'm going to have papers, or maybe I'm advanced and I have a computer model of my room. I'm going to move around all the different pieces. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to move the chair there and the couch there and the chair there. Okay, now I've got every change that I want to make. And I look at that and I say, okay, what's the smallest possible difference from my room as it is? What's the smallest change I can make? Okay, I still need to move this couch out of the way, but I know where it's going, so I'll move that first, put it where it's going, move the chair over, move the table, do all the moves at once so I can minimize the amount of work I'm actually doing and speed it up a lot. That little model that I did, that is the virtual DOM. So what React or one of these other frameworks will do is it'll pull together a set of changes that you want to make to the DOM, and it'll say, okay, let's we're going to rearrange things. We're going to put this title there. We're changing the text here. We're moving this around. Let's gather up all those changes, analyze to say, okay, what's the smallest possible difference that we can make to make those changes true? And then do that change all at once so that all of our like shared work of moving things out of the way or reflowing or whatever it happens to be happens exactly once. So the virtual DOM is a representation of the DOM as a model in JavaScript that lets you do all that manipulation the cheap and easy way and figure out what's the smallest possible change I need to do in the real 
expensive physical world, in this case the DOM, and do that all at once. There you have the virtual DOM as if you're five. Pretty good, K-Ball. Pretty good. I'm starting to feel like mine's going to be terrible. Yeah, I'm feeling really bad about mine after that. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we should have saved K-Ball for last. <laughs> all right. Pass it over to Chris, who said, please don't make him go first. So I'm making him go second. Chris, you're going to explain variable hoisting, right? Yes, I'm trying to explain like hoisting in JavaScript. So hoisting. It's kind of like, so you, oh my God. Come back to me. Come back to me. (laughs) (laughs) I love this game. We're going to come back to Chris. We're going to go to Amelia. All right. I'm going to explain the CSS cascade as if I were five. Okay. I mean, as if. Oh, that's a whole other different angle at the game. Explain (laughs) it as if you were the one who's five. It's going to be some combination. I think we're both five in this scenario. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's a game that kids play? Let's say this is, it's like playing Thumb War, where I want something to be a certain way and you want something to look a certain way. Let's say we want our toy to be orange or green. All right. So there's four stages to this Thumb War. And if anybody wins any of the stages, then they win and the toy is whatever color they want it to be. So the first stage of our thumb war is basically looking at importance. This is where the metaphor is going to break down. (laughs) (laughs) My thumb is more important important than your thumb. thumb. (laughs) Jinx. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's keep going with that. So there's four levels of how important your thumb is. The first is... If one of our thumbs is in an active transition, then we're on the first tier of this tier. The second level is if one of our thumbs uses bang important. The third level is if it's in an active animation. And the fourth is everything else. So in this tier, each thumb has a level, one, two, three, or four. And the smaller the number wins. So most likely both of our thumbs are in the normal category. And so ding, 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 we ran out of time. No one wins this round of the thumb war. So the second tier of the thumb war is origin. So where your thumb came from. (laughs) 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 All right, there's three levels to this. There's whether your thumb came from the website. So is it website styles? which is usually what you're dealing with as a web developer. And then the second one is user-defined styles. So maybe you painted your thumb. Mm -hmm. And the third level is browser-defined styles. So whether a browser painted your thumb. (laughs) Like somebody else (laughs) painted it before you got there. Yeah. So that's like yeah, when I paint my nails versus my kids paint my nails. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So um, this metaphor is making it more confusing, isn't it? So... If it's on a website versus a user-defined style, then the website styles win. If it's going up against the browser default styles, like there's a default button style, then that gets overridden really easily. You can really basically just write any styles for your website. All right, tier two is over. We're both website-defined styles. Nobody wins. Tier three, this is the longest one, and this is one you're usually dealing with when you're writing styles for a website. The first level is inline styles. So 
I cannot relate this to a thumb, but basically you have a style attribute on an element. You say color red. That's the first level. The second level is whether it's based on ID. So this is like a CSS rule that's targeting a selector that has an ID in it. The third level is classes, attributes, or pseudo classes. So CSS rules that target any of those. And the fourth rule is a type or pseudo element. So inline styles always win. And then for the rest of them, you kind of have to add up how many like IDs, which are level two, classes attributes or pseudo classes, which are level three, and types or pseudo elements, which are level four. And whichever number is largest or smallest, <laughs> that style wins. All right, we're almost over. So let's say there's a tie on that one, which there very rarely is. So say there's two inline styles. The last tier is position. So if one CSS style comes first and the other comes last, that later one will win. So that'll pretty much make sure there aren't any ties because you can't define things at the same time. And that is how thumb wars work in the web world. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I wonder if a paper, rock, scissors metaphor would have also been able to be used. Might have been better. Because like this one always beats that one, for example. I was just trying to figure out inline styles. Is that like if I tattoo <laughs> under my thumbnail or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You have to like inject it into your thumb, which not advisable. Maybe it had to be like a henna tattoo because JavaScript can always come and change those. You know, nothing's permanent. Somehow the color of your thumb influences, like if you capture the other player's thumb. Mm-hmm. I'm digging this. <laughs> I like it too. Although whenever I do a thumb war, I always bring my separate hand in and just like put it over the top and declare victory. So maybe that's like... Oh, my kids do that 100%. So they yeah. like to have like both of them. <laughs> so one gets one hand and they have both of their hands on that and the other gets the other hand yeah. and both of their hands on that. That's smart. There's your bang important right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. All right, Chris, are you ready or should we stall a whole nother round? Because I could go. No, 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 no. Let's do it. All right. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to explain function hoisting like you are five. So say you are at the park and you see a playground in your hand is a muffin. You have a muffin. And so you see the playground and you run over there and you want to climb up to the top and you need both hands to climb up to the top because there's like a ladder. So you drop your muffin in the sawdust. Okay. And you climb all the way to the top and it's awesome, and you are hungry now, and you want to eat your muffin, but it's in the sawdust. So function hoisting would allow you to eat your muffin even though you're on top of the play structure. It is the invisible sawdust fairy that picks the muffin up and raises it to the top? Yes, sawdust fairy, muffin fairies get your muffin, and they will magically... Take them out of the sawdust, you're the muffins out of the sawdust and put them in your mouth. That sounds magical. Sounds kind of scary too. Yeah, no, I wouldn't use it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like all of a sudden there's a muffin in your mouth and you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) JavaScript. JavaScript. The language of sawdust fairies. The muffin fairy is actually your your mom or dad. Mm. And they hide it from you, but they give you the muffin. All right. This is less scary. Thank you for, for changing that for me. So I should say that all of these topics were submitted by people in the chat. So appreciate that. Okay, but wait, did that make sense? Yeah, man. No. Magical sawdust 
Muffin fairies. I was with it. K-Ball, you're saying no. You're against. Did it or no? Amelia's just staring off into the sky thinking about it. She's like, does it? Does it make sense? I was trying to think, but then I kept listening. <laughs> yeah. So your muffin is your function or variable? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And you want to use it, but you're up at the top. Mm-hmm. And it was down there in the sawdust. Your muffin started down in the sawdust because it, you defined it later? Yeah, you defined it down there, but actually it got hoisted up. Sure. Okay. I did my best. I don't have anything better. It's like, come on, man. I did my best. I don't have anything better. And and I love the muffin fairy. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier, right? Like the real truth is that like hoisting just doesn't actually make any sense. Like, why do you do that? No, it's magical. Like I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think of, okay, how can I explain this in real world terms and things that actually make sense? And you can't because it's nonsense. And you gotta come up with a muffin fairy. It's nonsense, exactly. So I think I think given the nonsense that is variable and function hoisting, your muffin fairy is an excellent explanation. Yeah. There you go. It doesn't make any sense. Why is this muffin suddenly in my mouth? I don't know why it's here. I thought I put it down in the sawdust. I think this is actually a great argument against hoisting. <laughs> exactly. You well elucidated why I don't like hoisting. Yep. One hundred percent. You have done it well. Chris, I, I withdraw my objection. Given the nonsense that is hoisting, your explanation is perfect. On the same note, though, this is like the principle of least surprise, right? I mean, the thing should be defined where I define it. Don't magically move it somewhere else. That, to me, is a surprise. And I'm always surprised. I'm like, oh, I have to remember this random thing it does for me on my behalf. Thanks a lot, Mom and Dad. I don't even like muffins. So I put it in the sawdust. All right. Now can we move on? Because I have Docker. And while Chris had to invent, just off the top of his head, an amazing metaphor for hoisting, Docker is a metaphor. So I'm just going to use that one. So, hey, kids, you know how computers, programs are flaky and they always break and stuff, and that's annoying, like it works on this machine but not on that machine? Or it always crashes? Well, that's because computer programs are a lot like the way people ship produce around the world. So in the old days, if I had some bananas in Asia and some oranges in Africa and some pineapples also in Africa, these also grow other places, but that's just where they were. And I want to ship them to America to eat them here. You would have to have a different way of handling it for each kind of good. So bananas have their own rules. Pineapples, what's the other thing I said, also has its own rules. And so everybody along the way that shipped that to me so I could eat it here, they would have to handle it in a very specific way, and that's flaky. It can break until the invention of shipping containers. The cool thing about shipping containers is they're all the same exact size and the same dimensions, and they're stackable. And so you can take your shipping container, you can throw your bananas in it, you can throw your pineapples in it. I still can't remember the third piece of produce that I named, so you throw that one in there. And now every single boat, every single train, the forklifts, everything along the way doesn't have to care what kind of thing it is. They just move the containers from where they started to where, they, where you want them. And you can just eat those bananas and those apples and that third mystery fruit. It's oranges. Oranges. Thank you. <laughs> For some reason, they're coming from overseas instead of Florida. I didn't think about this very long. And that's what Docker is for computers, right? You just package up all the details 
of that particular thing that you want to ship somewhere else and run, and you put it into this Docker container, and uh, nobody has to care how the insides work. They just run it over there. It's all self-contained, like a shipping container. It's almost like you have a Docker shipping container metaphor that's just waiting to be used. There we go. How do I do? That's great. I was just thinking about how much money I would pay for a kid's book with all of these things in it. Oh, that would be kind of cool because we've done these throughout the years. We could actually gather up a bunch of them. That would be so good. And then pay someone to animate. I was going to say, what about an animated short, right? Like, I think (laughs) Nick's story from whenever that was would just be priceless. Yeah, Nick went on like a 15-minute tale. What was he explaining that one day? React hooks. And he used Moana? He used Moana and Coco. And he merged the movies. Yeah, the merge was a little stretched. I felt like there was like a lot of good Moana stuff, and then the Coco reference was a little bit like, uh, okay. Yeah, he was grasping at straws, but he still got the episode named after him. I think it's called Monad's Hook. Yes. So go look that one up and, and listen to that one. I regularly reference that to folks who are like, what's a good episode? And I'm like, well, if you want to laugh, like go listen to Nick in this episode. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or the tailwind beneath my wings, which is to this day my most proud moment on JS Party when we managed that one was delightful. to work in all the lyrics to Wind Beneath My Wings into a conversation about Tailwind and only had the grace to tell Adam Wathen and Faross about it midway through the show and then managed to put it all together and land it with our own cover of the song to open up the show. So definitely also, if you want to laugh and just be super impressed by our musical talents, go listen to that episode as well. Nick Nisi once again, like carried that episode. He did incredible. Yeah, because I was going to bail on the idea because it was getting so awkward and Nick just stuck to it. I'm like, this is happening. We're doing it all the way through. So, all right, this has been Explain It Like I'm Five. We'll be right back for... I'm excited about X, where X is literally anything. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers, by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. So, Chris, you got anything you're excited about? This is hard for me. It can be anything. Um, <laughs> I know. This is against your personality. 
my six-year-old has got me into Taylor Swift recently. I was never a T-Swift fan. And then my yeah. six-year-old is like mad about T-Swift. And there's a song that is, this is me trying. And I just saw like, you, you were like, ah, and I'm like, yeah, this is Chris trying. And this is me trying. He's kind of work up the gusto to be excited about something. So like, all right, you know, Legos. I like Legos. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Legos. They got this Lego ideas. And if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like a contest. And you make something with a Lego, you upload it to the site, and then people come and they vote on it. And if you get like mm. 10,000 votes on your thing that you made, the Lego team will and their designers will make sure that they like can get the rights to whatever you've you've made if it's like a licensed thing but they'll work with you to actually make it a real lego set and they'll release it. and there have been a whole bunch of these o- over the years like uh i don't know there was like a tron one there's like some like like a fishing cabin like a great big fishing thing uh lots of other ideas some birds and things like that just random stuff And I always get kind of excited when I see that another thing has made it to 10,000 because the ones that get that many votes are always really awesome. And I'm like, wow, I can't wait to not like justify spending $300 on that when it comes out. But like, they're cool. There's so so many cool things people make. And I don't know. I'm just really impressed. And that's what I'm excited about, I guess. How cool would it be to have your thing made into an actual Lego set? That would be just amazingly cool. Yeah, that's super cool. And it's such a great example of a company that is not just listening to their customers, but is like really engaging with them and being like, okay, like Lego super fans, let's make stuff together. The people that that are submitting these things, you know, these aren't kids, right? They're adults with lives, no, and, and, and like they, they enjoy Lego, which makes me not feel so stupid and, and nerdy. People like me, maybe not like me because I, I suck at doing that sort of thing, but they build these things out of this toy, and they get real Lego sets. And then when the set comes out, there's always like a really fancy booklet about the design, and, and it talks about the designer, and so that must be a real you know, a thrill for people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you watched the Lego Masters sh- game show on TV? I like tried to watch the first episode, but I don't really like things like that. The stuff they built is absolutely amazing. But if you don't like things and stuff, it is one of those. I don't. Mm-mm. I don't have uh, kids as an excuse to have Legos, although I, you definitely don't need that excuse. But I got to play with them recently because GitHub had swag for our like internal conference of like, you put together a little Mona Octocat and you get this whole kit. And it was so much fun. I'm going to break it apart and do it again. I had that much fun. Buy some Legos. I've never been the break it apart and do it again kind of person. I would just do it once, put it on the shelf and stare at it. <laughs> I might also do that. <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> it's cool because like you're building a thing and you get this feeling of accomplishment, even though what you have done really isn't that hard, but it looks cool and you did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it does prove you can follow directions. True. I actually failed that part. I didn't follow the directions and mine turned out weird, but it doesn't always prove that. <laughs> did you also color outside of the lines in kindergarten? I definitely did. <laughs> yeah. We do a lot of Legos in our house and anytime you have something like that or like you can't find the right 
color block or whatever so you fill it in we just call it that's being creative you got to be creative with your legos i hate that because i'm a perfectionist completionist so i'll look forever for that that color i'm like hours i gotta find a black flat two by one and if i don't find it i'm not gonna finish the piece yeah that's what we're trying to cut off at the pass with my kids no that's smart i'm not saying my way is good i just yeah i just can't stand having that one weird colored thing I'm like you, Jared, and it basically it, it creates like paralysis where you can't like finish the thing until you find the right piece, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the black two by one tile. Just reimagine it. You're practicing being creative. <laughs> I don't want to be creative. I want to follow directions and make the thing. Right. I want to look awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Different personalities. Hilarious. All right. Let's move on. Amelia, what are you excited about? I have two things. The first one is just a concept, WebRTC. I was playing with it recently. It's super cool. I had never played with it. Multiplayer web things are very easy when you're using it. Have you hung out with Faras? I haven't, actually, but I want to. Oh, we got to get you to cross those streams because, yeah, he's a WebRTC fiend. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, it just like connects your browser to other people using the same connection. I don't know what they're called. It's like really hard until it clicks and then it's really easy to do things that I am very impressed by. And the other thing I'm really excited about right now is generative art, which there's a lot of opinions here, but I feel like as developers, we want to be creative with our code, unless maybe we're being perfectionists about what we want to create. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Legos in the browser where... Yes. You can use like random as part of what creates the art or some other input that you don't totally have control over. So you're kind of like working with a computer to make something cool and you don't have to do it all yourselves. And you can use these skills that you use every day to make things that please you visually. So it's been something I've been really enjoying recently. Very cool. So I like the conversation around generative art especially when you get like into the full deep learning generated art and like authorship and intellectual property and these things because it gets very gray in terms of who actually created what and do we assign authorship to gpus etc k-ball what are you excited about i am excited about a virtual conference that happened recently that i did not attend but they have posted all their videos online and i've been going through them uh, which is Lead Dev did a conference focused on Staff Plus, so like senior IC engineers that has a bunch of really cool stuff in it. And I find it, I'm really happy to see people publishing content that is focused on senior folks that are still in very technical roles and not just assuming that as you get senior, you become a manager and only providing engineering manager content. So yeah. Go check that out. It's free. You create a free account and you can access all of it. Um, and we will, I'm sure, have a link in the show notes. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, last but not least, I'm excited because we are getting close to episode number 200. And we'd love to do something special since it's a nice round number. We don't have any ideas as of yet. So we are soliciting ideas from listeners in the JS Party channel. We'll, of course, be thinking as well about something we can do to celebrate a little bit our 200th episode, which is five recordings away. What I'm not so excited about is that our rival podcast, GoTime, those ghouls over there at GoTime, are hitting 200 this week, and they have stolen our front-end feud format 
They're calling it Gophers Say, and they're recording that one live. So if you love Fred and Feud and you don't mind, you can stomach a little bit of people talking about Golang and stuff, then uh, I guess you could listen to that because it'll probably be a lot like Fred and Feud, but just a, a poor impression. So I can't exactly recommend it, but I'm not going to stop you from going to gotime.fm slash 200 and listening to that episode. But then come right back to us and uh, help us figure out an even better thing to do for our 200th episode coming right up. Hey, there's a Golang web assembly compilation and runtime, right? So like you could imagine that they're talking about that and it's for the web. And therefore they, if they knew what they were doing, would be talking about it on JS Party. But <laughs> since they don't, they can do it on their own episode. I like that. This is kind of like go time web dev fanfic. Like you're just listening, but you're, you're tricking yourself into a whole other storyline where they're actually web people. Oh, this, this might work. If you can pull that off, you should come on JS Party for our next Explain It Like I'm Five because you have a great imagination and you can probably explain things much better than I can like I'm Five. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for hanging out. Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you laughed a little or at least rolled your eyes a lot. K-Ball, Amelia, and Chris, thanks for partying with me today. That's JS Party for this week. We'll talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening to JS Party. We appreciate you spending your time with us. If you haven't joined the community yet, fix that bug at jsparty.fm slash community. Get yourself some comfy threads at jsparty.fm slash merch and take it to the next level by joining Changelog++. That gets you all of our shows ad-free, occasional bonus content, plus that warm, fuzzy feeling you get by supporting people who make cool stuff for you. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, Nick invites Doug Martin to the show to talk about Nest.js, GraphQL, and of course, TypeScript. So stay tuned. That one will be hitting your podcast feed next week. Don't be the last kid on your block to get Firebase JS SDK 9.0.0. Don't be.